Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So it's Christmas this week, only a few days until Christmas. If you haven't completed your Christmas shopping yet and you are going to brave the malls and the shopping centers in the next few days, we will be praying for you. Please be safe out there. You know, if you're gonna go to the mall today or tomorrow, may the odds ever be in your favor. We trust that you'll make it through and come out alive and able to join us again for our Christmas service on Wednesday. Um, but, uh, but last week we started talking about Christmas And I shared a message which I'd like to do part two of today, entitled, Let's Not Be Weird About Christmas, all right? If you're taking down notes, that is the title. This is part two today. Let's Not Be Weird About Christmas. Um, And, uh, you know, every Christmas, every Easter, every, seems like every second Sunday, you know, we have Christians that raise questions on the basis of, of, you know, religious ideas, concepts, philosophies, debates, theologically around Christmas and around all of these things. Uh, what can we celebrate? What can we not celebrate? What can we indulge in? What can we not indulge in? And uh, we're going to look at a few of those things specifically related to Christmas today. But this goes much deeper. This is much bigger than whether or not you believe it's okay to have a Christmas tree in your house or not. Okay, we'll get to that. But it actually goes down, it comes down to what you believe about the gospel, what you believe about righteousness, and what you believe about what Jesus has done on the cross. It comes down to whether you're serving Jesus, having accepted his righteousness, imputed to you by his grace, and through the activation of your faith, or if you are relating to God through a series of religious principles and regulations and rules that you need to follow in order to be right with God. And so it comes down to what you really believe about the cross. Let me just start off by saying today that that here at Anchor, we love Christmas. We love celebrating Christmas. There was an event here last night that ended late last night, so we weren't able to put up all of our Christmas decor But after the service today, and this is also a free advertisement for anybody that is thinking about joining our setup or creative team, you can do so today. Um, But after the service, we are going to put up uh, pine cones everywhere and, 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 and all kinds of fairy lights and Christmas lights and Christmas trees and everything and in preparation for Wednesday's Christmas service. Um, but we love Christmas. Why do we love Christmas? Because of the opportunity it affords us to share the gospel. The opportunity it gives us, the, the platform, the moment that it affords us to be able to share the good news of what God has done for us in sending His Son as the greatest gift that humanity has ever received. That we received hope, that we received redemption, that we received through His life, grace upon grace. Let's be clear, Jesus is the gift. Jesus, Christmas comes from two words, Christ's Mass, and and that means to have fellowship uh, with, with Jesus and communion with Jesus and with one another. We celebrate His birth and the grace that God brought to us through Him. Galatians 4 verse 4 says this, 
And this just sums up Christmas. It says, but when the set time had fully come, in exactly the right time, God sent his son, who, born of a woman, born under the law, redeemed those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. We were under the law. We had to try and be righteous and religious and, and good in our own strength in order to try and, and, and earn our way into God's good grace and, into, and, and under the law, that's what religion says. You have, to, you have to behave before you can belong. And the Bible makes it very clear that the reason why God gave us that law was to show us that none of us could make it so that we'd be, we would become conscious of our inability to save ourselves. And then when he had convinced the world fully of their need for a savior, he sent his son to, born under the law, redeem those that were under the law, to redeem us so that now we're no longer people desperately trying to be accepted by God, but we belong to him. We're his children. We've been adopted. We belong to Jesus. We are the righteousness of God by our faith in Christ Jesus. It's literally the moment that redemption was born into this world. And that is the message, church, that we should be getting out there. That is the message that we should be sharing. That is the best news that anybody in this world could ever hear. And we should use every single opportunity at our disposal to point people to this incredible truth. You could use anything. You could use nature itself. For me, if you start recognizing and realizing what God has done, I go through life experiences with my own kids or my friends or my family or just life in the world or, or when I'm out in nature and I cannot help but reflect on the gospel because all of it points to Jesus. Creation itself points us to Jesus. The rivers, the oceans, the trees, the birds, the sunsets and sunrises, the beauty of it all. Every bit of the beauty and rage that we experience in this incredible universe points us to the Creator. In Colossians 1 verse 15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. And so God himself uses creation. Romans 1 tells us that, that the eternal attributes of God are visible in his creation. They're tangible. You cannot watch the sun go down over the ocean and the beauty of it all and look at the incredible complexity of life and, and of nature and be utterly convinced that there is no God. Something there scratches at our defiance of the reality of God. It's just, it's a testimony of who He is. His attributes are plainly seen. And so God uses this world and this creation and all of, all of creation to point us towards Jesus. And similarly, we are called as the church to use every opportunity, every festival, every feast, every bit of culture that we can grab a hold of, that we can hijack and redeem and repurpose to point people to Jesus. 
We, we've got to be as, as gentle as doves and wise as serpents. We've got we to think about how this world thinks and, and how they relate to the idea of God. And we've got to speak a language just like Jesus did to be able to build bridges through culture to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is why Christians need to stop being weird, need to stop alienating and rejecting every bit of culture as something that God calls us to do when he doesn't, when Jesus himself didn't live that way. Psalm 19 verse one, the famous Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day and night, they continue to proclaim this message. God exists. God is great. God is all powerful. It all points to Jesus. And we as his church, as his body, are called to be the mouthpiece of God. Through us, we are the voices crying out in the wilderness. We are the ones saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is what our message is. That is what we've been commissioned to do, to proclaim the gospel of his grace, the news of his love, the availability of, of forgiveness and redemption to every soul. Amen? Is, is, is that right? As the church, that's what we're here for. But sadly, so often, instead of Christians being known for what they stand for, too often we're known for all the things we stand against. For, for all the critique and the criticism and the judgment and the condemnation. Very few people speak about Christians as, oh, you know, I walked away from that, from that conversation just feeling so encouraged or so uplifted. Many times people feel condemned and judged and, and I'm not talking about when your own conscience convicts you or when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin so that you may turn to, to find grace in Him. I'm not, I'm not talking about a Holy Spirit conviction here. I'm talking about when Christians are weird about things that are inconsequential because they've built their sense of righteousness on trivial religious matters as opposed to the cross. And what it does is it alienates people. It cuts them off from the availability and the all-encompassing love of Jesus that longs to embrace every soul. So often Christians, instead of focusing on the message of God's grace and the salvation that is available through Jesus, become like the Pharisees, the religious elite of Jesus' day. And these were the only guys that Jesus really had an issue with, that he really confronted because he felt and believed that they misrepresented the heart of God. They misrepresented God's heart to embrace broken people, sinful people, lost people, a lost culture and a lost world. And they made it all about following a set of rules and receiving righteousness through self-effort. So, you know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, think about this, they argued with Jesus the only one who was ever truly righteous in his own self. The only one who lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. And the Pharisees, the imperfect religious leaders, argued with Jesus about how to be righteous. That's why Jesus calls them blind. You're speaking to righteousness about your idea of righteousness. And we can be quick to blame the Pharisees and to condemn the Pharisees. We do the same, church. 
So much of us do the same. We read the gospel. When we read the gospel, we read, we see the person of Jesus. This is not about finding out what rules to follow. This is about meeting Jesus so that your life can be transformed from the inside out. But we take this and we turn it into the same thing the Pharisees did, a code, a formula to be followed in order to achieve righteousness without the need of Jesus. And that's deep down in our hearts. That's the Pharisee in every one of us. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, every man is born a Pharisee. We all wanna save ourselves rather than submit to the righteousness that comes from God. And so these religious, righteous, legalistic people judged Jesus, the Son of God. Perfect, they judged him. Why did they judge him? Because according to their religious view, Jesus didn't live righteously. He didn't abstain from the right amount of things. He didn't follow the, the right rules. He, 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 didn't, he, he mixed with people that religious people and Pharisees in those days would never mix with. He blew up their religious idea of what it means to be righteous. And this is why they wanted to kill him. They believed that they were right in wanting to end Jesus's life because they believed he was a bad influence on people. They're trying to tell the people, you must do, do, do. And Jesus says, I wanna tell you about what I'm gonna get done. I wanna tell you about my grace. I wanna tell you about the heart of God. So, so here's an example of where they judge Jesus. Matthew eleven nineteen says, the son of man came eating and drinking. Notice that, not fasting and abstaining. Now there's nothing wrong with fasting. It's a good practice. And there's nothing wrong with abstaining according to your own expression of how you wanna serve God. But there is a problem when you think that fasting and abstaining is what makes you righteous. It's not. There's only one thing that makes you righteous and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the finished work of the cross, nothing else. Outside of Christ, there is no righteousness. There's nothing that we can do to be made righteous. So they look at Jesus and they say, he's eating and drinking and they say, look at him. He's a drunkard and a glutton, or a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus just blows up the whole idea of religious righteousness by hanging out with the worst of the worst, the prostitutes, the tax collectors that were literally thieves, representing, they were, they were Israelites that represented the, the Roman government and taxed their own people, many of them poor. And the rule was the Roman government needed a certain amount of money from each person and the tax collector could charge under the authority of Rome anything he wanted and keep anything he makes above what Rome needs. So they would charge the people three or four or five or six times the required tax to make themselves wealthy. They robbed their own people and Jesus hangs out with them. He hangs out with the prostitutes. He hangs out with the worst of the worst. He goes to the feasts, he eats, he drinks, he enjoys, he laughs at the jokes. He's in the middle of life and sin and, 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 and brokenness. He sits at the table with imperfect people. That's so different from how the church often presents itself as ones that are to be removed from those people. It wasn't Jesus. And so the religious people, they, they actually pointed Jesus and said, look at him, he's a glutton. He just eats everything at all the feasts. 
Can you imagine, because oftentimes we think Jesus sitting, having some food and he'll just have like this perfect piece of chicken and like some celery and I'm sure Jesus ate healthy. And Can you imagine Jesus with just like a pile of meat on his plate? He's like, man, this food is good. Licking his fingers, you know, this is amazing stuff. He partook. And so they called him a glutton and a drunkard. The reason is because religious people believe that what you do makes you right with God. But what the gospel declares is what Jesus has done makes you right with God. The one is up to you. It's about you. And the other is death to self because it's about Jesus. The one is about you churning up and working up enough religious credit to be able to try and claim some form of of credit before God, some form of dignity before God, and it's a fallacy. It's impossible. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The other one says, God, I know I'm a sinner and I need your grace. So I surrender to the righteousness that comes from Jesus. The one makes you self-righteous, which is the same as unrighteous. The other makes you truly the righteousness of God by your faith in Christ Jesus. So one's about you, the other is about Jesus. But religious people are always about them. They're always thinking about how much they're doing and how much better that makes them than everybody else. We had that example in the scriptures where the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like this man. There was a Pharisee and a sinner that went to pray. And he goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I pray, God, all hours of the night. And I serve, and I worship, and I I give my tithe, and I do everything that I'm supposed to. Thank you, God, I'm not like this man. Can you imagine praying like that? Like how self-centered. Jesus actually told this story. He says the the sinner just beats his chest. And he prays, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says that it's the one who beats his chest with a humble and healthy and authentic estimation of himself himself surrendering his sinful heart to God who goes up from that prayer justified. The Pharisee remains unjustified because there is no justification under the law. There is no justification or righteousness in your own strength. We need to submit ourselves to Jesus. We need to accept his grace. So Jesus doesn't fit the religiously righteous mold He goes to weddings and feasts. He eats and drinks. He hangs out with the sinners. And the Pharisees, the religious people are going, how can this man say that he represents God? The truth is, he was the perfect representation of God's heart. As the church, we do the same as the Pharisees many times. How? By focusing on man-made commands and human standards of religion rather than on the complete work of the cross. We make up our own rules, separate or extra to the Bible. And we say that if you're gonna be righteous, you have to follow these rules. You can't come here, you can't fit in, you can't belong unless you follow these rules. But they're not God's rules. They're just man's rules. And we subject people to this, producing condemnation. We wanna rule through that that sense of, of, of guilt that produces condemnation without realizing that when people feel condemned under the law, It makes them worse, not better. The strength of sin is in the law. Instead of pointing them to their identity and righteousness in Christ, we focus on man-made religion. Under religion, you have to follow the law in order to be accepted. 
But the problem is the law cannot deal with the sin in your heart. And so what is left for us to do? If you can't deal truly with what's going on in your heart, the, the, the sinfulness, what, what, but you want to fit in and you want to be righteous, what do, you, what do you do? There's only one thing you can do. You pretend. You pretend. Religion will make you pretend. At Anchor Church, we strive to be an authentic church. We strive to just be open and go, we're, we're not perfect people, but we've been perfectly loved by a perfect God and perfectly saved by a perfect Savior. Like that's, that's just who we are. But, so we don't have to pretend, church. Religion says you are judged by how you behave. So if you can pretend to behave perfectly, if you can pick up our subtle unspoken code of behavior and modify your behavior, you can be like us and then you can belong. But that's not the gospel. When you face religion, everything becomes about the outside, what you eat, what you drink or don't drink, whether you have a Christmas tree in your house or not, can become a part of that. And the laws never end because you never are quite righteous through it. So it just continues forever. The religious people of the day, to the religious people of the day, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 23, 27. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You have to be. Because nobody can claim to live a perfect righteous life in their own strength and not be lying about it somewhere. So, you, you, okay, you look great, guys. He's talk, think about this. He's talking to religious people. Oh, you look great. You say all the right things. You sing all the right songs. You give all the right amounts. But what's happening in your heart? Do you honor God in your heart? Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so he says, woe to you. Colossians 2 has always been one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's one that really liberated me in an amazing way. And I thought, before I share on some specifics around Christmas, which is what I promised I would do, um, I just wanted to give you some highlights here from this chapter. But you can go and read the whole chapter. If I had time, I'd read the whole chapter and I'd read it in at least three different versions. Because I love this verse and how it says things. But first of all, in uh, Colossians 2, verse 2 to 4, it says, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments abound within Christian preaching and blogs and posts. Because what they say is, you, you know, there's a way that just seems right to man in order to be right with. And so, and so I could come and I could have preached the message here about why we should all abstain from many of the practices of Christmas and it would be a plausible argument but not the gospel. And Paul says, our wisdom and our knowledge is in Christ. So don't be deluded by plausible arguments. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the Bible, the scriptures, the heart of God, no, human tradition. 
according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Don't let people convince you that you need to be this or you need to be that in order for Christ to accept you. He goes on in verse eight and he says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let them judge you according to their religious precepts. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of those things, the festivals, the new moons, the, you know, the abstaining or not abstaining from food and drink, the, even the Sabbath itself was only a shadow of Christ. It was supposed to point to Jesus. Jesus, in fact, is the Sabbath. Hebrews 4 says that God worked six days on the seventh day he rested. And then it says that those that are in Christ now rest from their works as God did from his. Why? Jesus did the work. And this is talking about works trying to earn salvation. So we rest in the finished work of Christ. He is the Sabbath. So Paul says in Romans, one man esteems one day above all other days, like he chooses a Sabbath and that's his day that he feels he wants to honor God. Let him esteem that day. Another man chooses to esteem every day alike. Let him do it until the glory of God. In other words, you know, you get some people that, that take their whole stand on what day you should be celebrating the Sabbath, when Paul clearly said, you don't even need to celebrate a specific day. You can just make all the days the same and just honor God every day. But you get whole churches that set up their entire mission for existence on proclaiming which day should be the Sabbath. Can we just start by reading the Bible before we proclaim those things? You don't need, if you have to work on a Sunday, you can work on a Sunday. Pick another day for your Sabbath, or don't, pick every day. The principle of having rest and to remind yourself that God is the one who takes care of you and so you can step back and allow him to take care of you. You don't have to make everything happen. The, the heart of the Sabbath is beautiful, but it is Jesus. But to get caught up in religion around the Sabbath would be to go against the book of Romans and the writings of Paul. So these are just about Jesus. He goes on in verse 20 to say, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Now, when I first read this, I read this for years and didn't understand what it meant. Because whenever I read it, I read, this is the way I understood it, if you've died to the world, you're dead to the world because you're in Christ, then why do you still do worldly things? That's, that, would, that would be my paraphrase. And without properly reading the next few words, I just said, yeah, 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 that's right. I'm dead to the world, which means anything that the world partakes in, anything that the world thinks is okay, I've got to just be dead to it. At one point, I had a pastor that was desperately trying to get me to give up watching rugby. It was a struggle for me, right? <laughs> Because in his opinion, once you're dead to any passion or interest or hobby that you've had, only then can God truly use you. What rubbish. But they felt that you need to die to any interest that belongs, any hobby, anything that you love in the world because that is what makes you righteous. It's not true. In fact, the opposite is true. Look at what it says. Why do you submit yourself to the world, to its regulations? What are the regulations of the world? What is fleshly? What is worldly? What does it mean to be worldly? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. 
referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So in other words, being really worldly means when you follow all the rules. You're super disciplined. You've fa- you, know, you know, you hear about these leaders that read a book a day um, and, or a book a minute. You know, it just gets more ridiculous every time you hear about it. Like these, these CEOs that, that cycle from four in the morning and then pray for four hours and then like lead 100 children to safety and then, you know, and then, and then like write a book in the afternoon and, and, and then, you know, whatever. And you're like, I've got to be like that. And religiously, people who go, yeah, if you don't wake up at four in the morning and you don't fast for at least 40 days once a year and you don't do, then, then God can't really use you. They set up human precepts and it's worldly. It's fleshly because it's not depending on Jesus. It's depending on self-effort. Listen to this. It says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. It does seem wise. If I got here and you know that as your pastor, I was up 4 a.m. every morning of my life praying, which I may or may not do, I won't disclose. And I was reading, you know, my Bible and I, was, and, and I was just the most devoted, committed person. Never touched sugar, never did anything unhealthy, never, just perfect on all fronts. People go, wow, that's a real man of God. Right, haven't you, you seen that? Oh, that's a real man of God. But actually what this says is that, yeah, it does have the appearance of wisdom in promoting what? self made religion, not the gospel, self-made religion, and asceticism, which means to deny yourself, and severity to the body, which is, one translation says, severe bodily discipline. But they are of no value. Did you hear that? No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Amplified translation says, they do not curb the desires of the flesh but instead indulge them. Because we don't want in the flesh to submit to Jesus. We wanna be good by ourselves. We want our own dignity and our own righteousness. So this is actually saying that the harder you try to be good without Jesus, the more unrighteous you actually become. As Christians, we can be so good that we're really, really bad, just like the Pharisees. And that's what Jesus addresses. He says to them, you need to submit to the righteousness that comes from God through Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness and our wisdom. So we don't have to observe obscure human regulations in order to be right with God. We are right with God because Jesus was born and lived and died on a cross. End of story. Our faith in him purchases purchases that redemption for us. So all this brings me to say this, besides for if you don't believe in Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It brings me to also say here at Christmas time, let's not be weird about Christmas or Easter or any of the random things that insecure Christians who haven't got a revelation of the gospel are always talking about. From Christmas trees, whether or not having a Christmas tree in your house is gonna somehow attract the demonic forces of hell to invade your home. To, and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I'm sure you've heard this one. Teletubbies, right? Like, how many of you have heard, like, my kid watches Teletubby, that's it, now they belong to Satan, right? That's it, it's gone, it's over for them. To monster energy drink, I'm just giving some examples, these are real things. 
I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I sat countless times with young people in my office, teenagers crying because their parents were so fanatical about these kinds of superstitious religious things that they would come home and their mom would have taken all their like Batman and action figures and stuff and thrown it all in the bin because somehow each of them is laden with demonic power. Or if you act, you know, just think about it for a moment. Like, so sorry to hear about your brother turning his back on Christ. What happened? He had a monster energy drink. You know, just like, that's what happened. You know, he was serving Christ faithfully and then he had a monster energy drink from the garage and, and yeah, you know, you, you, he didn't know that, that like M is actually the Hebrew symbol for 666 and when he drank at that moment, the, 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 the demons took him. This is legit what Christians say. And it would be funny if it wasn't so sad that we've become so fickle in our faith. How did your child end up a Satan worshiper? Teletubbies, man. Teletubbies. I knew there was something weird about that baby face in the sun always laughing at everyone all the time, you know? It's just weird. Come on, church. The real enemy of the gospel isn't hidden symbols on cans. It's religion. It's self-righteousness. It's the elemental notions of do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. They indulge the flesh. But as the church, as God's people, we have victory. And as the ones who have the victory, we have the ability to dominate, to hijack, to overtake, to redeem and repurpose any part of culture. We're able to, rather than being victims of culture, repurpose it, co-opt with it, and use it to point people to Jesus. We can build bridges through culture because we're not threatened. We're not threatened. Our faith isn't threatened by traditions that people use. In the same way that God can take any human, regardless of his origin, redeem him and use him to his glory, God can take any feast or festival or environment or culture and use it to his glory. So what's the main argument then against Christmas and people that believe, Christians that believe you shouldn't celebrate it? What they say is celebrating Christmas with trees and gifts and Santa Claus and the rest originated from a pagan festival. And it's usually the Northern Saxon uh, European festival that was celebrated centuries ago, uh, the, the origins of which are very obscure. We don't even know that any of this stuff happened for certain. You know, history isn't always as clear, as, as clear on these things. It's often derived from a source, from a poem, from a, you know, an account. Um, and, and, they, and they say that there was some sort of pagan roots to a lot of these traditions specifically around the winter solstice and the celebration of the winter solstice. And so, so because it has its origins in, you know, possibly in some pagan festival, you know, we shouldn't partake in any of those traditions or have them in our homes. You shouldn't have Christmas trees, shouldn't give gifts, uh, shouldn't have candles or bells or, or carols or any of those kinds of things. But when I hear about the origins of the pagan origins of Christmas or any other feast or festival, my answer is simply, so what? So what if somebody else used those cultures and ideas and traditions for something evil to, to worship a false God, as long as we're using it to worship the one and only true God? Because we'll take it and redeem it and use it to his glory. 
Things don't hold. You know, they say that in a pagan festival, we shouldn't use candles at Christmas because in a pagan festival, they use candles. What are you gonna do when load shedding happens? Not touch your candles because at one point, the pagans don't get to own candles. What are you gonna do with a Christmas tree? Don't put it up because somebody might have worshiped a tree. Let's go chop down the Amazon. Let's not have any trees in our yards because at some point, they don't get to own the trees. The, the whole world belongs to God and the fullness thereof. We get to reclaim trees, candles, and any other thing that we want. Secondly, the meaning of any word or symbol or custom is determined by current usage, not origin. We don't always apply the logic we would apply to every other area when it comes to these kinds of things. Let me give you an example. How many of you today would put a swastika on your car? You know the swastika symbol. How many of you would put a swastika sticker big on your back window? Is that gonna work well for you? Nobody would do it here, right? Well, the, the origin of the swastika coming from the East was a symbol of, of, of auspiciousness and well-being and good luck. It's, it's why the Germans used it to say that Germany had been smashed in World War I. The treaties they signed had, had rocked them and bottomed them out as a nation. And they used that symbol to say, this is our return to favor. This is us taking up our place. So the swastika, the origin is a, it's a good symbol. I love how Wikipedia put it. Wikipedia said, under it, it said, a symbol of auspiciousness and good luck until the 1930s, <laughs> when it became a feature of Nazi symbolism. But if the origins are good, why don't we all just stick swastikas on our cars? Because today, it has a different meaning. So we don't do it. So it doesn't matter the origin. It matters how it's interpreted today and what it means today. And for centuries, Christians have understood the power of redefining powerful symbols, festivals, cultures, feasts, moments to point people to Jesus. Paul had no problem co-opting a pagan altar in order to spread the gospel. Speaking at the Areopagus, he says in Acts 17, 23, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, pagan gods, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he literally uses a pagan altar as a pulpit, as a bridge to speak through culture to the people in the way that they would hear it. It's a beautiful thing. Paul wasn't worried, no, no, if I speak from that, then I'll release the demons on the people. He co-opted culture to win souls to Christ. So here are a few more, and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll look at these few things now before we finish. But here are a few more related arguments that people have about Christmas. I'm gonna run through, through them real quick. The first one is, number one, Jesus was not even born on the 25th of December. So why are we celebrating Christmas on the 25th of December? And in all likelihood, that's true. We don't think that Jesus was born in, in uh, December. Most people think, uh, most scholars believe, they deduce that it could have been somewhere in April or somewhere in September, but nobody thinks he was born over December time for various reasons. 
But again, I say, so what? We picked that day. It's a pretty good day. Let's just use it to celebrate the birth of Christ. What does it matter? I would like to ask people to say, no, 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 no. Jesus wasn't born on the 25th. Then I go, okay, cool. What's your date? What's the date that you celebrate his birth? Because I'd rather have a day that I celebrate and honor God for sending his son than no day. So what date do you celebrate the birth of Jesus on then? It's definitely not unbiblical to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Number two, why, why do we give gifts? Isn't that a part of the pagan ritual, which apparently, uh, which would be weird, at the winter solstice, solstice, like center of winter, people gave each other gifts in pagan times, which actually is pretty cool. Imagine if we just like middle of July, hey guys, let's just give each other gifts because it's cold and we need stuff, right? But, you know, again, we're saying, are we saying that the pagans have claimed the rights of gift giving? That they own gift giving? Will just mentioned earlier in the giving message that, that the Magi, the wise men that arrived at G, with Jesus, gave him gifts. Gave him gifts to celebrate his birth. And by the way, the Bible never says that there were three wise men or three Magi or three kings. Um, it actually just says that there were three different kinds of gifts. It doesn't say how many Magi they were. And, you know, they traveled from the east most likely by camel, which means that they didn't arrive there at the nativity while Jesus was still in the manger. Um, they probably only arrived when Jesus was like a year or two old. But besides for all of that, are we really arguing against generosity? If, if I had to start building an argument scripturally for generosity and God as a giver and the fact that we should give to one another, the diodes on this LED screen would die out before I get halfway. The scripture shows us God is a generous God and we are called to be generous people who love to give because that is the heart of God and it displays that we know him. Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love each other. In Acts 20, Luke writes, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So are we really arguing against giving each other gifts and against blessing each other? Now, let me say that some people go, yeah, yeah, but the problem is that we focus on the gifts and not on Jesus. But let's also be honest to say that's our problem with everything we do. How many of you worshiping today while the band was playing, you were just perfectly face to face with Jesus? Like you didn't think of another thing for one split second the entire time. All you could do was bask in the radiance of his glory and, and you were just so in mind, soul, body, everything, spirit, you were there with Jesus. I'm willing to bet that at least some of us today had some distracting thoughts. At least some of us worried about what we were gonna eat for lunch or when we were gonna be able to go on holiday or how long the pastor was potentially gonna preach or, or the song go on. We all wrestle with the flesh and our thoughts in these things. That doesn't mean that we stop worshiping on Sundays because we might get distracted. In the same way, just because we might at times, face the temptation to focus more on the gift than the giver, it doesn't mean that we have to abandon it altogether. I'm almost done. Number three, can we tell our kids, and this is for parents, can we tell our kids about Father Christmas, as he's known in South Africa, or Santa Claus? And I think that what legalism does, religious legalism, is it loses sight of the biblical principle and, and reality that God often communicates truth through allegory, through metaphor, through symbolism, through poetry, 
Did you know that 27% of the Bible, almost a third of the Bible is pure poetry? Why? Because what God does is he knows that, that the human soul absorbs and receives things in a certain way. It's why God takes truth and he doesn't put truth on a spreadsheet and fax it to us. Who still faxes? I don't know. But he doesn't email you a spreadsheet of truth. He takes truth and he wraps it in beauty. He puts it in stories. He, he, he infuses it with, with his own heart and soul and love and passion. And he writes it beautifully with poetry. He takes truth and he wraps it in beauty. You know why? Because it helps us receive and digest the truth. It's kind of like, and I know this is a horrible analogy, but it's kind of like putting a tablet inside of, you know, a Vienna for a dog. Have you ever done that? Like, you don't just give the dog the pill, you put it inside. And that's what poetry does. Now, when we become legalistic, we almost begin to believe that children are now lo no longer allowed to activate their imaginations because if it's not on the spreadsheet, it's somehow a danger. But I would contest that awakening a sense of wonder in children's hearts, even through the idea of a magical Father Christmas or Santa Claus that they'll believe when they're little, that the truth that comes through is that Christmas is about giving. Christmas is about generosity, that we can still use even the concept of Santa Claus or Father Christmas to teach our children about the generosity of our true Father, God in heaven. Fairy tales, allegory, and children's stories convey truth. They don't threaten the gospel, but awaken a sense of wonder within children that helps them to receive the truth simply and fully. The Bible requires all of us to believe many fantastically supernatural things without ever seeing them. We're all called to believe in heaven. We're all called to believe in the angels. We're all called, to, and most of us will never see those things in this life. But God stirs an imagination within us, and so stir, stirring the imaginative heart of a child, especially when that produces an opportunity to introduce the love and generosity of Jesus to them, is a good now, ultimately, that's still every parent's decision, how they want to appropriate that. I don't, but I don't personally know of anyone that has turned away from Jesus because they believed in Santa. I do know many that have turned away from Jesus and the church because of fanatical parents who wouldn't let kids have any fun. Because they said, well, then God's not fun. God doesn't care about my life. He just wants me to follow the rules. It's a far greater misrepresentation of God. There is one problem that I have with Santa, though, that I thought I would point out, because we don't accept these things wholesale. Here's one problem that I have with Santa. Um, these are the lyrics from a song written by John Frederick Coots in 1934, Santa Claus is coming to town. I'm sure you've heard it. And it's all fine, except he's making a list, he's checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping, which is creepy. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. You see, there's a message in there about goodness, but it's not the message of the gospel. And that's where we differentiate. Romans 5, 8 says, but God, this is the difference, shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So 
Santa may have a list about who's naughty and nice. Jesus doesn't. Jesus has a list of who's forgiven. That's the list he keeps. Who's forgiven. In any case, to finish off with the idea of Santa Claus, the word Santa Claus comes from the Dutch Sinterklaas after St. Nicholas, who lived in the fourth century. And Nicholas was actually just a priest, became a priest at a young age, and he was a generous. The story goes, so the, you know, from what we know from history, um, he was well known for his compassion and his generosity and had a reputation. He, his, he had Christian parents who died and left him an inheritance. And, and he had a reputation for just giving that money away, just giving generously and anonymously and would often leave bags of money in people's homes overnight so that he would remain anonymous. It doesn't even have a pagan origin at all. I don't know if you can see from the photo there, this is actually a reconstruction that they made recently when they took the bones that they've kept of St. Nicholas and looked at the bones. He was about five feet tall and that's how they've reconstructed his face. You'll see his nose is a little bit skewed because it turns out that jolly old St. Nick had a little bit of an aptitude for fighting especially his theological counterparts. They say that Nicholas was part of the council of Nicene that came up with the Nicene Creed and in a argument with another bishop, punched him in the face and ended up in jail for, for assaulting the other bishop until they later released him and declared that his argument was valid and he was correct, although not, he shouldn't have punched the guy. He was just a normal guy that was generous and yes, I know that within the Roman Catholic Church, the veneration of saints and all those things are questionable, but still, it's not the origin that matters, it's what we do with it today. What about feasts? Isn't Christmas a pagan feast? Well, if you read your Bible, you'll find out that feasts are a major part of what we do as Christians and what we're gonna do in heaven and here on earth. We saw how the religious people had an issue with how much Jesus loved to feast. Finally, I'm gonna end on this one today. I wish I had more time. There's so many more we could cover, but, but I'm gonna go to a pet peeve of mine. Have you ever heard pastors and Christians say that we cannot say Xmas instead of Christmas? Because Xmas is the antichrist spirit. X being the variable, meaning you can put anything you want to put in there. And so it's just a part of the global assault on Christmas. Now, I'm not denying that there are some that want to eradicate Christmas from the calendars and turn it into happy holidays or whatever else. But before we make such passionate pleas and such bold statements, church, let's be responsible to do our research, to fact check ourselves. I've heard pastors say, if I see a shop that has an X on it, that says Xmas, I'll go into that shop and I'll say, I will never shop at the shop again because this is the antichrist spirit. Except it doesn't mean that. The Greek word for Christ, the Greek spelling is Christos, like you can see over there. Please tell me, what is the biggest and most prominent part of Christos? It's the X. He, C-H-I, he, is how you would spell it in English. And it makes up the largest part of the name of Christ. He, Ro, if you take the P, that symbol over there has been used by Christians 
to represent the name of Jesus since the early church, since the time of Acts. Turns out, even in some of the many of the Greek New Testament manuscripts, instead of writing out Christos like that, they just put the X. It's not Antichrist, it's Christ. His name is represented by the X. And this practice entered Old English as early as AD 1000. And by the 15th century, Xmas was widely used in Christian writings as a symbol for Christ. So don't get me wrong. I'm as concerned about you as a world that wants to remove Jesus from the center. I'm as concerned about it as anyone. But I'm not gonna fight about the X in Xmas. Specifically knowing church history and having done just a little bit of reading to find out what it really means. The problem is the ones that end up doing the war on on Christmas are the pastors and the churches themselves. Can you see how silly we can get, church? How weird we can be about all these things, arguments about this or that, and it distracts us from the real sin. You know what the real sin is? Neglecting our responsibility to share the love of Jesus and the good news of His grace with everyone we meet, starting with our own families. That's the real sin. Because we're too caught up in moralism and legalism. Let's embrace every opportunity to share the love of Jesus. I'm gonna end this two-part message with this, mess- this uh, verse that I read last week. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or celebrate Christmas or have a Christmas tree or pop crackers at the table or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You determine the value. You can take today's message and take out the word Christmas and put any other thing that you wanna put in there. If you can responsibly stand before God and honor Him through what you do, that's what we're called to, to honor Him. So church, let's not be weird about Christmas. Let's love people. Let's share the gospel. And let's use every opportunity to show people the love of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning.